Hello, everyone. A warm welcome back to all of you to Intersections. At Intersections, our goal is to help bring us together to study human potential and the possibilities in life and in leadership through different lenses. And the lens that we will use today is the lens of photography. Henry Grossman is a preeminent exponent of that craft. He is someone that uh, is a dear friend and a huge influence in my own career and life with regards to a couple of core lessons that I have learned from spending time with Henry. I'm going to start by just giving you a little introduction to Henry, and then we will invite him on the show. So Henry is um, one of the most iconic photographers because of the iconic photography that he shot over the course of the 20th century and in the last couple of decades as well. He attended the performing arts school and studied photography here in New York at the Metropolitan Vocational High School. He did his undergraduate degree at Brandeis in theater arts with a scholarship and also a graduate study in anthropology. His photographs have been memorialized in some of the leading media like New York Times and Time Magazine and Life as well, which some of you might remember was a very storied institution with its uh, beautiful photographs in the days of print. And in addition, he is also someone who studied acting under the renowned Lee Strasberg, an American director, actor, and theater practitioner, which led him to actually act on Broadway, for instance, where in the theater production Grand Hotel, he performed over 1,300 times. And he also has sung at the Metropolitan Opera as a principal artist, which got him in contact, of course, with some of the great opera singers and artists of his time. And we're going to come back and talk more about that. And so um, it is not, uh, therefore, a surprise that he went at some point into codifying some of his beautiful photography and work and experiences and observations into, into the form of books. And this is a really beautiful compilation here from him on um, his experience with one of the most storied names in the performing arts in the 20th century, the Beatles. On that note, let us bring Henry onto the show. Warm welcome, Henry. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. And for that introduction, I hardly recognize myself. Well, that's, um, that's because one of the secrets to um, you know, your power and experience is how you dissolve yourself, isn't it, into the identity of the individual that you are you know, next to. And I saw that so, so beautifully in our own first interaction. Do you remember that first interaction you and I had? I certainly do. I, as a matter of fact, you entered a dining room that I was in and uh, sat at a table away from, there was a group of us sitting at a table and you sat by yourself and I saw that and I walked over to you and I said, why don't you come join us? And you said, I, but I don't know anybody. And I said, sit here and you will in, in, within three minutes. And you joined us and became a friend for all of us. Yeah, that brings back such a fond memory and it's remarkable how vivid it is for you uh, after all these years. But um, I, what I saw in you, you know, on that day and then ever since was the deep interest you have in humanity at large, and in particular, in the people right, you know, in arm's reach, and in even more particular, the one person that is right in front of you. There's something that I, um, you know, I like to offer to my class, you know, at Columbia, as well as our executives, which is this uh, quality of giving 100% of yourself to the present moment and to the person in front of you. And you epitomize that. Uh, it is such a joy to have you on the show, because I know that here our um, you know, beautiful audience who's all tuned in is going to get that 100% from you, Henry. Thank you. Let's start with some of the early inklings that you had and when and where were those that got you drawn to you know, this craft of wanting to capture people on camera. Where did that begin? Well, my father had a friend uh, who um, was a, uh, an acting coach in New York and as a teenager, I would go over to his house and we'd read some monologues and stuff like that. Eventually, I auditioned for the um, performing arts high school. I got in. I went one year and didn't understand the acting work, you know, the Stanislavski method. So I came out and uh, transferred to the main building, which was Metropolitan Vocational High School. And they had a, a boat, a ship on the Hudson also. So I had photography in the morning and academics in the afternoon until I, I'd been ahead of myself by a year or two years. So I stayed an extra semester taking uh, academics, uh, finishing all the academics. And I had taken the uh, photography courses morning and afternoon, graduated, went to work in, at a school, private school in Connecticut, 
started acting there. And while I was acting there, I read that Brandeis University was having auditions for scholarships using a monologue that I had just learned for a show I was in in Connecticut. I auditioned, I got the scholarship, and uh, I went to Brandeis. And at Brandeis, starting my second year, I started working for the photographer, uh, developing pictures and whatnot, and then going with him around the campus, taking pictures of famous uh, visitors with students. And uh, I always had a camera with my telephoto lens on for photographing uh, my portraits. Now, the portraits I got from my father. My father had been an etcher, had done portraits at age 30 or 27, 40, 30, rather. He did Mussolini, spent two weeks in, in Rome in 1927 in the palace with Mussolini for a couple of hours a day. He went to uh, London, a conference with Gandhi in Germany with Einstein at his home and did portraits. And, so I grew up with the, this kind of headshot. Um, I saw recently, uh, I was reading some notes and uh, my father spoke to Mrs. Einstein. Uh, they spoke, arranged it through her and they spoke in Italian. Anyway, uh, that's what's important is that these are the kind of heads that I grew up with. When I was at Brandeis and I started shooting, I shot Ben-Gurion. And this was, Ben-Gurion spent a week at Brandeis I, this was, he was getting an honorary degree and somebody stood behind him with a black robe and I got that shot. And then I spent a week with him in New York afterward and brought these pictures to Time and Newsweek and Life magazine. And uh, and, and uh, for those who don't know Ben, like, uh, can you can you tell us who, uh, who he has been? Ben-Gurion was Prime Minister of Israel. Yes, thank you. And Time and Newsweek both accepted to use that picture that week in 1960. And uh, I gave a copy to Ben-Gurion and he hit the print with his hand and said, ah, I'm too old. I brought the pictures to Life magazine that week and Life magazine smartly, there was a woman named Ruth Lester who saw the people, saw all the material coming into Life magazine. And she said, Henry, if you want to work for Life magazine, you have to learn to take five less good, but more storytelling pictures. That's when I became a photojournalist. I see. And uh, Kennedy came to Brandeis. The day he announced in Washington that he was going to run for president, he came to Brandeis to be on Eleanor Roosevelt's TV show. She was teaching at Brandeis. And he wanted her approval, which he did not get that day. But I see a little trepidation here, but I love this portrait. It was taken with flash. And uh, <clears throat> there's a whole series of pictures that I took of her with him. I see. You know, he's, he's certainly quite a quite a figure from the 20th century in uh, in American hearts and minds. Um, you know, I, I, I feel Eleanor Roosevelt is as well, and in many ways, uh, to me, an even more complete leader, you know, as a woman figure, you know, in a time in American history where women had more limited, you know, roles, you know, that society offered them. She ended up sort of being such a pioneer, such an influence on future, you know, women leaders and, and the world beyond with the work that she did both at the White House, but then after that, um, in contributing to the start of the United Nations. So I've always looked at her in, in a very sort of uh, impressed light and have offered up many, you know, insights and stories about her in my leadership class. You had a moment with her as well. Yes, what was interesting was watching her that day, particularly because Kennedy wanted her approval and uh, he stood right next to her like a little boy, hoping that she would say, yes, I agree, I want you to be president. But no, she withheld because she wanted Adlai Stevenson to be president. And I saw it was interesting, the interaction between the two of them. Right. right. I was around campus a, a bit, shooting pictures of her, which you'll see later on, one of. And the, actually, the first picture, now, come back to Alan Rosa a bit. No, this was Chagall. The next picture is uh, Mark Chagall, the artist. He spent a week at Brandeis, and I followed him around, getting him with students and whatnot. And I gave him a copy of this picture, and he, his remark was, oh, the, the, the luminosity. And I, I said to him, I smiled and said, it's not me, it's you. And it was, there was a, a childlike sweetness about that face when I saw it there. Yes, it's beautiful. One could look at that smile for a long time and right. still, still feel very nourished by, by continuing to look at it. It's beautiful. That, I'm glad you said that because that's one of the things that I was really looking to get. Uh, I, I spent uh, a, a while in Iran on an archaeological expedition from Brandeis University. And there was an old beggar who sat outside with no legs sat outside of our hotel every day, but he had a wonderful face. And the professor pointed and said to me, said to us, there were two students, that's the kind of face that people will come from miles around to gaze into because it has yeah. goodness in it. And I, lo I love a picture that you could have on your wall that's 
looks at you and you can't take your eyes off it. I recently shot a friend of mine in California and it's not the most beautiful picture of this woman, but it has, it's something you kind of look at and wonder who she is and what she's thinking. That's what this picture has is exactly what you said, the sweetness and the openness and the taking things in and understanding things. So beautiful. And the next picture is during the Kennedy campaign. At Brandeis, I got to know him that one day briefly, but I gave him pictures during the campaign. And whenever Kennedy was campaigning on the East Coast from between Boston and New York, I'd take time off and go and shoot. This was at uh, a Staten Island ferry in New York, but it has, there's, I use the word recognition. As an actor, I'm used to seeing and understanding and uh, uh, hoping, hoping to explain what who people are. And this picture has connotations to me of a gallows, of an execution, because of that lamppost and the policeman up top. And here's Kennedy speaking. Anyway, the next picture is during the campaign. And I love this picture. Kennedy uh, campaign used it in New York. They blew it up to about 12 feet long. And it ended up in the White House in the press room on the wall afterward. And I called when I was in the Army uh, for six months. I ha had an opportunity to... Uh, have my time off concede with, uh, coincide with uh, Kennedy's trip to Europe to meet the goal and uh, with Jackie. And uh, I called the White House to say, can I get credentials? And they said, Henry, you can have anything you want because we've just hung your picture here. So that was sweet. Look and at you had some personal moments with him too, along the way as you were taking all, you know, all of these shots of him in the White House and outside. Oh yes, and Jackie Kennedy, when she lived in New York after, would call me or her somebody would call me from her office and say meet her here come take a picture of her with these students from brooklyn who were giving her a check for the kennedy library or she had asked me to meet her at um, the office of im pay who was the architect for the kennedy library and uh, i went to meet her and uh, the Swedish prime minister was giving her a check. There was only Pei and Mrs. Erlanger and the prime minister and me in the room. And he handed her the check and he said, Mrs. Kennedy, on behalf of the Swedish people, I give you this check for the library. And then he turned to his wife and she handed him a Tiffany box, of a light blue box. And he said, "Very." his hands were shaking. And he said, I'm from Mrs. Erlanger and myself, I give you this crystal vase. And he handed it to her and she smiled. And he, very hands shaking quickly, said, if you don't like it, I take it back. And he was so nervous. Uh -huh. Jackie and I, as we were riding down in the elevator, she was remarking she couldn't understand how people were so nervous or shaken around her. And yet we got to the lobby, and the lobby was filled with people who had heard Jackie Kennedy was in the building. And but we had started a conversation, Jackie and I, and as we, we walked through the lobby, through this bubble of, we were like in a bubble, paying attention to each other, out to her car to get in, people parting and pointing and ooing and eyeing. And uh, I understood one of my first acting lessons at performing arts was on concentration. And when you concentrate, how, how you lose all the nervousness and tremulousness and of uh, being where you are, et cetera, and concentrating on what you're doing and how urgent and important that is when you're on stage. And I had an, a living experience at that moment of exactly that kind of, that uh, concentration. That's beautiful. Uh, you know, in modern times, we might use the word mindfulness for this, you know, this yeah. notion of being completely present, you know, in the moment. And it's a quality that you have uh, experientially, perhaps, or intuitively, certainly, you know, over the years honed. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful example through your life of how much power there is in, in that in that so that's that's beautiful uh, henry shall we move on to more pictures or yeah what would you the next one yeah okay let's do that oh yeah okay, now you're in the white house when we were in the white house because i got to know him during the campaign we called him jack but not if people were around in the white house then it was mr president but um the day before i was going into the army or two days before i was going into the army i arranged to bring some pictures to him to autograph and to give him some and a friend of mine from Life Magazine was shooting pictures. He said, I hear you're going in to see Jack. Give me your camera. So he, Paul Schutzer shot, oh, about 15 or 18 pictures of me talking with Kennedy. And I love these. The yeah. So for those who didn't recognize, this gentleman who's pointing to something on that page that J Jack Kennedy is looking at is, is Henry. The, yeah, Henry from the 1960s. I was a windy boy and a bit. Um, Tia Salinger on the left and... Uh, Andy Hatcher, the assistant press secretary in the middle. But the point was, 
another point was that I uh, rushed home, printed these on postcards to send to editors and people that I'd shown my work to before. And I mailed them from Fort Dix from uh, when I was uh, on my active duty the next two days. And uh, the sergeant collecting the picture saw me with Jack and he said, that's you with the president. I said, yeah, that's me and Jack. And he dragged me in front of the entire bunk and said, who here can take Grossman? And I drew myself a big not quite knowing what's going on. And he then pointed out, pointed me out to the barracks and said, you're in charge. So that picture, I'm glad to have that picture for other reasons. I mean, it's a wonderful souvenir for me. And Jack autographed um, a number of prints and photographs for me. Yeah, One, beautiful. A picture you'll see later. This picture, I had shot this. I had no assignment on this. It was on my own. Uh, this was during the campaign, but it ran on the U.S. News and World Report's inauguration issue cover. And uh, I gave one to Kennedy in a leather binder. And I uh, said, uh, I'll, I'll have to send President, uh, Vice President Johnson down later. But a week later, I got a call saying, where's Mr. Mr. Johnson wants to know when he's getting his picture. So I arranged to go and bring it down. I gave it to him and uh, shot some more pictures in his office. By the time I got back to the White House after lunch, the White House lobby was filled with reporters talking to somebody. And I pushed open the swinging door. And as I walked down, I saw an arm waving, pushing the people aside. And it was Lyndon Johnson reaching for me to shake my hands and say, I want to thank you again for this morning. And that was kind of Yeah, that's beautiful. So let's see what we have next. Oh, this was the night of Kennedy's birthday at Madison Square Garden when Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President. And I thought this was an unusual celebration. Yeah. Well, Henry, I think part of what we are gaining from this is just how you are a living encyclopedia of <laughs> some of the most epochal kind of moments and events in uh, American history you know, in the last several decades. It's beautiful. Is the, now, that's Marilyn Monroe, and that was that night. I was backstage, and she came in with Arthur Miller's father on, her, on his arm, and uh, yeah, she was on his arm, and she came into the green room backstage to wait to go on, and it was J Jimmy Durante was there, Maria Callas, and Maria, I have a picture of Maria Callas asking for getting a, an autograph from Marilyn Monroe that night. What was sweet was Marilyn Monroe was so, you just want to cuddle with her. She was so sweet and so lovely. I didn't understand early on when I saw her in movies when I was a teenager. I didn't understand what the attraction was. But this particular night and later, of course, as I grew up, I, I understood much better what the attraction was, and what charisma is, what personality is, what charm is. From, and here this woman had it, obviously. And are you saying, Henry, that she exuded that even, you know, backstage, not just front stage? Yes. yes, there was no audience for this shot. This is just being walked to the green room and where she was going to meet Durante and, and uh, Callas and uh, Shirley MacLaine while they were waiting. Now, when I came to New York at Brandeis, I uh, accumulated a, a three-page, three-column, single-space list of famous people who came to Brandeis that I photographed. And I brought it to New York, showed my pictures to people, left the list with people, with magazines and newspapers. And uh, when when Kennedy was shot, the next morning I was in, in the White House. I, well, when it was shot, I immediately called Life Magazine, because by then, in 1963, I'd been working for Life on assignment for a while. And uh, so they had me go around New York getting reaction shots. And the next day, as they're going into the White House, I saw people reading the newspaper in the White House lobby. And that was both of my pictures on there. The Times, New York Times newspaper photo editor had liked my pictures and kept them in his desk, desk drawer and used both of them that day. I had no idea they were going to be used. But, wow. Yeah, that's yeah. such a... Um unforgettable moment, isn't it, for everyone who lived through it in America? This was uh, 1963 in May in New York City, uh, outdoors. I love this picture. It's been used on a Time magazine cover. The Time magazine had a, a German painter painted, colorize it and paint it uh, for the 25th anniversary of JFK's death. And uh, I gave Jackie a, a, an 11 by 14 copy of this picture. And the next afternoon, Saul Linowitz, who had been chairman, who I had known as chairman of the board of Xerox, Saul was at her house the night I gave the picture to her, and he's, he called me the next morning and he said, I was at dinner last night with Jackie and some friends, and she kept getting up from the table to go and look at this picture, and she showed me what it was, and she said, I think it's my favorite picture of Jack. Lot, I see a lot of aspiration in this picture that I love. 
Yeah, this whole idea about looking into the skies, uh, you know, is yeah, and, uh, and looking forward. And this is Jackie at home. I was just at her apartment in New York a number of times to take, take some pictures. And uh, one time her press secretary, Pamela Tunur, who had been her press secretary in Washington, was getting married. So Jackie had a reception at her home and I went to take pictures and there was uh, John John, about three years old, dancing with his dog. And I took pictures of that. And it was fun. Ellen Roosevelt at Brandeis talking to students. Uh, I loved it. I used, for those of you interested, I used, I bounced the flashlight off the ceiling to get a softer look. And you see the shadow under the nose I always started with looking for what we call Rembrandt lighting, which gave a molding to the face better, a little shadow under the chin. And I met Yusuf Karsh and, uh, and another photographer. Uh, anyway, who, one of the things I learned was always put into shadow what you don't want to show. And so that in, I learned how to shadow double chins and whatnot. But not in this picture wasn't necessary. But the thoughtfulness, I love that in her face and kind of a gentleness to that picture. This also, she had a column in McCall's magazine uh, every month. And I sent this picture to them and they used this and then began using several more of my pictures uh, over, the, over the different months. Uh, that I shot at Shatis at Brandeis. It's got a lot of, um, you know, to me, an energy of wisdom in it. Yes. You can see that she has lived a lot of powerful experiences, but not just lived them. She has processed them, reflected on them, grown from them, you know, acted on the basis of that growth and uh, been been like this incredibly dynamic, you know, like work in progress, right? Uh, on, on the catch of her life. Everything you just said is part of the background of my thinking when I'm shooting them, people like this, who they have been, what they have witnessed, the, the wonder of who she has known and she has been beside and position, positioned herself with not only Franklin D. Roosevelt, but re relating back to Teddy Roosevelt and all, and all the leaders of the world that she saw and knew and what she has been. I, and, but I see that in all the artists, I've, even when photographing Pavarotti as a singer or I'm realizing what they have done and who they have been. Yeah, and that's beautiful. The um, the little dimples that you see on a cheek, I mean, to me, they communicate a sense of tremendous resolve, you know, as though she's um, just uh, full of so much grit, you know, in, in uh, oh, yeah. what she's doing. As I mentioned, I saw that the night, the day she announced she had Kennedy on that first time when Kennedy announced and he wanted her approval. And she just resolutely stood beside him and stared forward as... <laughs> Wanted her to, you know. Yeah, wow. To, to say yes. I had an appointment. Somebody wanted a, was doing a friend of Johnson's, was doing a, a book about him. And I was the assignment I got was to get a strong but gentle photograph of Johnson. My appointment was in March. It was early in the morning. So I didn't bring any lights, figuring there'd be plenty of light. Well, that morning, he went instead to a hotel to make a speech. And it was the first day after the assassination that he really started coming out and saying, I'm going to be your next, I'm going to be voted president next. So uh, stick with me. And uh, my appointment got later into the afternoon. The light was diminishing. And somebody from the press office came and said, OK, Henry, we're going to go out there now and go to the office. We opened the door to the hallway. It was dark, but there was a little skylight overhead. There was no electric light on. And down by the Oval Office door, I could see a Secret Service man sitting up with his, leaning his chair against the wall. He sat up immediately as soon as he saw the door open. And I reached a hand to the light switch, and Barbara from the press office knocked my hand away and looked around and said, no, we don't know who turned us off. And Because it turns out that that week, President Johnson had said, we're wasting too much electricity around here. Don't turn on so many lights. Light. And to build the time going from one end of the office back to another chair where there was a better light, I took him by the elbow and I said, Mr. President, that speech you made today when you said this and this and this at the hotel was terrific. I'm so glad you said that. And it was as if something snapped in him and he beamed and uh, he sat down and just looked at me. And I was... I was his man and he was my man. I love that. And this is that strong but gentle portrait. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, you know how hard it is to actually capture just the right moment. The expressions on our faces and all are so fleeting and often unflattering when you just capture them at random moments. And uh, obviously, it's one of your, you know, just like high skills here uh, in, in display, Henry, that you have so many of these people in not a studio setting, where it's posed, but it's in their actual real life living context, just being captured, you know, naturally. That's something that you said you were very drawn to is going yeah. for the natural look. There was an acting teacher named Michael Chekhov who uh, used the phrase uh, in his book uh, to the actor, 
talking about the psychological gesture. One of the things as a Life magazine photographer and People magazine and whatnot was to try to catch people making movements and talking and making a point. And uh, in watching people, you, you watch for the moment that ex of expression. President Kennedy's first press conference as president was at the State Department. There was a huge crowd of photographers on a platform in the back. And every time he, uh, I thought he looked so wonderful and I would snap and I would be the only snap I heard and I'd say to myself, well, good, nobody else got that picture. And then all of a sudden, every camera would go, and I didn't know why. I said he didn't look that great that moment. But I put my hands in my pocket and listened and watched. And I saw that every time he raised his hand to make a gesture or to talk, all the cameras went. I noticed the next day in all the newspapers, the only pictures they used were not the heroic, forward-looking president. It was President Kennedy made the point that and said that. And I learned how to use gesture, physical gesture, as well as psychological gesture. Yeah, that's beautiful. So talk about sort of... How did you get acquainted with the Beatles? I mean, they were, you know, they were a phenomenon, you know, at the time that they you know, came to the United States. The youth in the country were already, you know, just ecstatic and just completely in awe of, uh, of these four. And so there must have been a lot of, you know, if you want to call it paparazzi, you know, of that time who were out there seeking to capture just that one magical moment with them. And there was Henry as part of that um, community. How is it that you gain such intimacy and proximity to them? Time magazine sent me to photograph them on the, the Ed Sullivan show. And the next week I got a call from um, an English newspaper to go to Atlantic City to photograph them there. And I did. And I got spent a day there with them backstage in the hotel. The following year, I got a call from a London newspaper saying our entertainment editor is going to go to Nassau with them in um, they're making a movie called Help. So I, they wanted me to go. So I went to the Nassau, spent about uh, a, couple, a good couple of days there, and flew back to New York, had the pictures developed in New York, and showed them to Life magazine before I sent the, those pictures off to London. I then got a, an assignment from Life magazine saying, go back to <laughs> Nassau, please. Well, before I went back, I was living around the corner from the stage delicatessen, famous deli. And I went to the owner and I said, Max, I'm going tomorrow to the Beatles. Uh, can I bring them a salami or something? He gave me a salami and some stuff to take to Nassau for the Beatles. So that was kind of sweet. I spent another week with them. Then I went to Austria with them. And uh, while I was in Austria, George and, and Pat, George said, Henry, when we're in London, would you come and take some portraits of me with Patty and I said I'd love to so when we got to London I went to their house took some pictures of them which you'll see here and then at one point he said let's go visit John so we went to John's house which was nearby five minutes away ten minutes away and uh, I took some more pictures there and gradually every, every time I was in London I would call uh, the Apple office and I'd say would you let uh, George know that I'm here in London at at the hotel, the Westbury Hotel, across the street from the Time Life office. And he'd call back and I'd get the new telephone number du jour because it changed practically a week, every week, uh, every day, uh, and arranged to go to George's house. An interesting aspect of that was, you'll appreciate, was uh, after one time I, I went over and uh, was, I saw this instrument on the wall and I said, George, what is that? He reached up and took it down and started trying to tune it. And he said, it's... It, it's a sitar, but I don't know how to, I don't really have a teacher to teach me how to play it. And I looked at him and I smiled and said, George, you make a lot of money. And he smiled and I said, you could probably afford to find the finest sitar teacher in India and bring him here to spend the summer with you. And the next year I was, anyway, he went to India. The next year I went to George's house and knocked on the door and he's barefoot and dressed in Indian clothes. And he looks down at my shoe clod feet and says, Henry, wouldn't you like to come in and take the shoes off? And he had become more Indian uh, in his thinking. I love that. There was, uh, at one point, I, I was learning from them. And at one point, uh, when we were in New York earlier, George had said, Henry, what's a w another word for such and such? And I don't remember what the word was. He was looking for a word for a lyric. And uh, I said, I don't know. We'll have to find a thesaurus and look it up. He said, what's that? So I went out and bought him a Roger's thesaurus. And I gave it to him as a gift. And then in the next year, I saw an interview where he said, and it was only when a friend of mine gave me a gift of a thesaurus that I learned how to look for such words or whatever. Another time, there's a when I was doing the life photo of the Beatles, I, uh, I looked at Ringo's tie, and I, I was, and I, let me go back a moment. I never knew who, uh, where I was going to be going or who I was going to be photographing. I was always dressed with chinos, 
and a shirt and tie almost everywhere I went. I never had a pair of dungarees. When I was photographing Ringo and the Beatles in, uh, for the cover, I looked at Ringo's tie and I said, Ringo, I wish I had the guts to wear a tie like that. He came up to me, fingered my Liberties of London Paisley tie, looked me in the eye and said, well, Henry, if you did, it would still be Henry, but with a bright tie. I learned. I learned that from them. Uh, the picture you saw on the Morley Safer bit there, me posing with John on the, on the beach. I'm wearing dark glasses. I'm posing. John is not posing. He's just being. Anyway. That's beautiful. By the way, uh, did you ever talk to George about some of his spiritual interests? Um, so, for instance, uh, we are aware that he uh, was deeply invested in studying uh, Indian spirituality uh, through the teachings of, uh, you know, this yoga master, Yogananda, who would come to the United States. And he was a very devout follower of, uh, you know, of, of yoga and of, of Yogananda. Was that something that uh, ever came up in your conversations? Yes, but not specifically of the Yogananda. I had a tape recorder in those days. Uh, and one, t one time when I was over at George's house, I, I said, can, can I turn on the tape recorder? And we started talking. And I have about a 20-minute tape where George is talking about philosophy and what was and this kind of thing in background. And I realized that I had five years of higher education, quote unquote. And I realized that George was way ahead of me in terms of being educated in terms of philosophy and who he was and what world thinking was. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing that. So we are going to go back to your photo library. Um, let's uh, let's pick some in particular. I mean, like this is so incredibly beautiful. Seventeen magazine. Notice the shadow under the eyes. I was always started my lighting. I had one light with me and this was in Washington. I set him up. There was a 17 year old girl that I was was interviewing him. I see. Beautiful. I was hired to get pictures for his Kennedy for the campaign. This was uh, about a month before he was shot. And uh, we were started off in, uh, I think it was in Louisville, and uh, started moving. We had up early in the morning, speech at the airport, flight for 10 minutes, land, speech at the airport, up 10 minutes, land again, up and down, up and down. And we, I think this was, finally got to Nebraska. And there was about a 20 minute drive into the near town where the meeting was. And he lay down in the front seat, and I was in the back seat. And to me, this is Kennedy with the empty road ahead. It was just eer eerie picture to me. Nixon in his office the week before he announced he was going to run for president in 1968. I was having trouble getting him to smile, and I didn't know. Um, I always looked for the serious picture. I had to make, had to learn how to capture a smile. And I, I looked, and I, I saw a picture of his daughter on the radiator behind him on the mantel. And I said, oh, is that your daughter? And he said, oh, yes. And then he started beaming, and I began shooting the picture. Ah, that's beautiful. And uh, Jimmy Carter, on my Grand Hotel vacation eve, uh, I was asked to be the, hotel, the photographer for uh, Elie Wiesel's hate conference in Oslo. And uh, Jimmy was on the plane and came around the entire, it was a charter plane, and uh, came around and shook hands with everybody on the plane. And it was great. And then... Yeah. I also photographed Mandela on that conference. Oh, this is me, and you see the tie that Ringo's wearing there. That was that. That was fun. That was beautiful. Mandela was also at the Hague conference, and um, I had asked him, "Could I get a, a, a portrait later?" Notice the shadow under the nose, and uh, going for that lighting. This was in his hotel room, and anyway, he said yes. But we were invited to dinner at the palace first, and uh, I saw him leaving dinner earlier. Packed up quickly ran out and he was just getting into a car and going away driving away and i saw gregory peck and his wife getting into a, a limo nearby a car and i said mr peck are you going to the hotel can i go with you i said sure so i sat in front with my hero gregory peck my god and raced to the hotel which is 10 minutes away and my heart's thumping all the while i'm sitting in this car with gregory peck and his wife heroes anyway i get to the hotel i called up to mr mandela's room I told his assistant that, that he had said yes for a portrait. And I went up, I had about five minutes to get this picture. And that was it. Five minutes to capture something for eternity. I mean, that is incredible because this is one of the most profound and beautiful pictures of his. You know, it's uh, such a, you know, it exudes such nobility. Yeah, look into that man. Yeah, that's beautiful. Did you travel to India? Was this in India? This, no, this was in Wales. Oh, I see. Um, I got a call from Time Magazine to go to Wales. Time Magazine was doing a cover story on the Beatles. And I didn't want to go because I'd spent a lot of time with them that week in London. And they said, we'll send you, a, we'll give you a car, Henry. You'll, you don't have to worry about taking a train up or flying up to Wales. So I rode up to Wales, took pictures with them, and then finally another picture of them and all the girlfriends. And that day, Brian Epstein died. And we had oh, to, wow. to get back. And... Uh, 
most of the arrangements had been made for people to get back, but Paul, I offered my car and Paul and uh, his girlfriend took me up on it. So we rode back for about six hours um, in a limousine to Washington, into to London. I was just a friend. I was not pumping him as a journalist, just offering a companionship and a way back to London. That right. was interesting to me. Then that's John, and I love that picture. That was taken in London. No, that was taken. I'm sorry. That was taken in Austria after Nassau. But what I like about it is in my book about the Beatles, in sorting out pictures, the first picture that we ran across of John, I said to the publisher, he said to Brian and Kevin, I don't, I don't like that picture. Look at that suspicion in the picture. And they said, no, no, that was the first moment he met you. Now let's look at this one. And there you see a different picture. Now this was at breakfast in Nassau. Early in the morning, I went to have breakfast with them. And uh, George came in, had just gotten up. And I said, you know, I don't usually do this, but I've got to take a picture because I never saw you looking this way. And to me, this is what an actor playing Hamlet should look like. But this is one of my favorite pictures, you know, from you. And it's one of my favorite pictures of George. Uh, yes. It's such, a gift. such a gift to those of us who like uh, Beatles and Amelia. I love that. Now, oh, that's Merrill Streep. I spent a for TV Guide, I was looking for a cover portrait, not this one. And the, the, the portrait I shot, and then she let her hair down. And instead of using the flash for the portrait lighting, the sunlight was screaming off the floor, and I shot it. And that's this is a picture. I love this picture. It is beautiful. Meryl Streep, and it's a strange image. In San Francisco, Pavarotti, Carreras, Aragal, and Ricciarelli, and Aragal's mother were in a hotel room, and they were playing poker. And I love the mafia look to this. I, was visiting with a friend and I happened to be in San Francisco at that time. Yeah. Did you watch the recent uh, documentary on Pavarotti? I loved it. And uh, I first, people like magazine sent me to photograph Pavarotti in 1972. I went to his uh, hotel room here in the city in New York where he was staying and he was cooking for friends, about 10 friends and a picture of him carrying on a big plate of spaghetti that he had cooked. His friend Giuseppe Di Stefano was there among others, and it was just marvelous. And then we became friends, and I, I was backstage once. Um, he was getting, there was a gala being broadcast, and I, I went with him. I went to the backstage to see how it was going, and he was very nervous. And he said, oh, my friend, now I make a terrible, terrible mistake to sing this aria here. And I said, no, Luciano, you're going to be terrific. Just then the loudspeaker came and Mr. Pavarotti to the stage, please. So I ran around to the green room to watch on TV. And he went out and sang. And I saw the nervousness. But he came to the high note and he grabbed it. And it was terrific, terrific. And I saw triumph. I raced home and I didn't see any of the nervousness I, I saw, I thought I saw when I was in the house watching backstage. Wonderful. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I, uh, our mutual friend, Jan Petrie, who's actually been on the show as well, talking about her journey with Mother Teresa. She uh, is the one who, uh, you know, introduced us to, you know, the idea that there's this documentary on Pavarotti. You have to watch it. And it was so uplifting as, a, again, just an insight into his character. There was a, um, you know, a couple of things that really caught my eye there about his um, tremendous love of people and his, uh, his sense of joyousness and his uh, optimism, his, you know, his desire just to keep doing, you know, good things and seeing a lot of positivity around him. <laughs> He was wonderful. Uh, I got up early to go to Philadelphia. He was going to be judging a, a, a singing competition and getting a, 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 key, a key to the city from the mayor in Philly. I got up early, go, went to, took a train to Philadelphia. And as we're going into the mayor's office, he's, he takes me by the arm and says, Enrico, I want to, I'm going to hear you at the house. I said, but uh, I'm, I didn't vocalize. And he said, no, you're going to sing. We went to the opera house. And as everybody's filing into the opera house, I went to center stage to try to warm up a little bit. And uh, I, the woman who was playing the audition was, was somebody that I worked with in New York City all the time. And I said, Margaret, I don't have any music. Do you remember? She said, I can do that anytime. So we, we got ready to do it. And I'm, I started vocalizing a little bit as, as Pavarotti is sitting down. And there's a tug on my arm. and said, Grossman, offstage, offstage. He's going to hear people. And Luciano says from, no, it's a hymn. So he was listening. He wanted to hear me sing. Yeah, that's... He got a number of times I sang it. When he was at a place like Carnegie Hall, he would invite a couple of friends over to sing for him on, during a break so he could hear them in the hall. It was kind of great. I hadn't realized that he had such an incredibly inclusive and expansive aura about him in terms of just kind of welcoming into his fold everyone who was there, paying attention, taking joy in their joy and all of that. So that was really beautiful in the film. You know, will you be sharing any of the Martin Luther King in March in Washington and the John Lewis speech? 
Did you did you capture any of those moments? I was at the March in Washington speech. I was nearby uh, Martin Luther King when he made the speech. But at that time, I didn't know who Martha, the importance of Martin Luther King. It was that event that he made the speech of. Right. I have a dream. Yeah. So I focus focus on a lot of the uh, movie stars and Bob Dylan and uh, movie stars that phoned in from Hollywood, and I was trying to get them. So I I a couple of pictures of Martin Luther King. I had the audience because I was covering the event, and I had a whole uh, huge pond filled with people uh, listening to the speech and this kind of thing. But I was when I got home, and as in so many events that I was at, I had to wait till the next day and or evening to watch on television to see what I should have known and what I needed to know about who that person was and what the importance of that event was. Wow, was that's uh, so humbling. Yeah, so beautiful. Not always know in advance. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Why don't you tell me if you want, which picture you want me to call? The first one of Elizabeth Taylor with Richard on, on the screen, that one. That was uh, the day they got married. And Life Magazine sent me to uh, Montreal, to Toronto, where he was appearing in Hamlet. And they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I've got to go everywhere you go, because Life Magazine, think, Magazine thinks you're going to get married. And they laughed at that. But I spent two weeks with them there, going everywhere they went. And uh, finally, they called me and another photographer from London they knew in and said, we, we want to get married, but we don't know how to get, get out of the hotel without the press. So Bill and I went downstairs and found a way. And on their promise of being able to photograph the wedding, we left the night before, went to Montreal, photographed the wedding. And at this point, when she looked at him, I said to her afterward, I said, Elizabeth, as beautiful as you are, when you look at Richard, you are so much more beautiful. And uh-huh. yes, I really feel. Yeah, so, so amazing. Marian Anderson in Central Park. This was a, a black opera singer, an important one in America. Yeah, it's beautiful. Einstein, I did it, usually did his Christmas cards, and uh, I had to sneak my portraits in when he was uh, to get his passport pictures. I mean, but try to get a, a portrait because I would go to their home on 72nd Street and take pictures. The next picture is just that Bernstein is going to be appearing at Carnegie Hall, and there's me in the mirror taking a picture of me with him, practicing before going on. The next picture is kind of nice, because Cal- Maria Callas gave her finale at Carnegie Hall. I auditioned for her master class. I was supposed to be in it. I got an assignment to Life Ma- from Life Magazine to go to California. I went, came back, and the dean meets me in the hall, the, going into the class the next week. And he says, I have bad news. Callas called in you yesterday or last time, and you weren't here. And you and several others are out of the class for not being here. I said, well, what am I going to do? And he said, sit down in front of him. And she says, who's next? Raise your hand. I did. She said, you're Grossman, eh? And I said, yes. He said, no. That was interesting. This next one is Pavarotti. Yeah, yeah. By the way, just staying with that picture for a moment, uh, one thing I really find powerful in it is to watch the people, you know, on the right. And the way you capture them in that moment of adulation and, you know, and you know, joyous connection. I'm so glad you recognize that because, as a matter of fact, that's unusual. Later on, I was photographing at Carnegie Hall some other events, and I went to run down to this, take pictures of the audience and up close, and they wouldn't let me. They said, no, no one's allowed down there. And I said, but you know that picture you have in the office, a big one? Oh, I shot that, and they said, no, it's forbidden now. I was just trying to cover the event and the enthusiasm. Look at that. And Yeah, that's well, so beautiful. Pavarotti, we were in uh, Japan. He was rehearsing. We were in a hotel room rehearsing, and sitting near a window. Uh, I saw him looking at the, what was going on. I went up, I shot a picture. He then reached across to the curtain, pulled the, the curtain halfway across his face. I shot it. And the last picture in the series is just the curtain. Yeah. Wonderful. This is, uh, to me, it's sort of like a Benoit painting, you know? It, yeah. If you put more blue into it, it's, it's really sort of, yeah. It's a- the quiet strength behind that. This is Thelonious Monk, jazz musician. This was shot on the street outside of uh, his home on West End Avenue, which is now, this particular block is known as Thelonious Monk Square. But this is, again, going for the shadow under the nose to define, help define the face. But look at the strength in that. And there's yeah. an openness. I love that. I, I found this, this was in my files hiding until my son, who was a, a musician, asked me, Dad, don't you have any jazz musicians? And I went through and I found this one. I loved it, so I made a print for him. Yeah, this is beautiful. I mean, look at his eyes. You know, you can barely see one, and the other one is also from the side, and yet they're so arresting. Yes, I love that. So beautiful. All right, well, um, this, we, okay, let's go to Windsor for a moment. Well. Duchess of Windsor. He was president of England for a while and left 
abdicated to become her uh, husband. Uh, uh, Time magazine sent me to this. That night after that, I saw this, after I shot this picture, there was a screening of a show of a movie with him and picture of him entering India on an elephant with a huge acclaiming crowd. And the voiceover was, and I could see him at the back of his head sitting in the audience. The, the voiceover was, if you had told me that all the, in my lifetime all this would be gone, I wouldn't have believed you. And I believed him. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Okay, one other picture. That one. That's. I was uh, auditioned for the Metropolitan Opera after Grand Hotel closed. I got in. I was a member of the company, and this was as an officer in Ariadna of Naxos at the Metropolitan Opera. I was a principal tenor. Anyway, the yeah. next. Uh, oh, this is me with Pavarotti. Yeah, so so incredible. So that's it in terms of the photo show that um, you had for us. So let's take a retrospective, right on. I think mean, a life like that has been incredibly well lived and that continues still today to offer such joy and beauty and grace to the world uh, as I've seen over the years that I've known you and as the audience today is seeing here with us today. One of the things that you know I learned from you, Henry, is the power of presence. We've spoken about that. Another that I learned from you is the power of appreciative inquiry. You know, it's, a, it's an expression that we use in business where we talk about this quest that a manager, a leader should be on to look for, you know, the strengths and the special contributions and qualities in the people around them to constantly be reinforcing those. And one thing with you is how that is just so instinctual to who you are, that you are just always invested in looking at uh, the possibilities, you know, for greatness and inspiration and beauty in the person right next to you. It is an incredible craft and gift that you have which I have personally not just witnessed, but been uplifted from and benefited from in our inter interactions where every time I interact with you or you know, my, my loved ones or others that I've seen you with, you know, we're always walking out feeling like, like I'm so awesome, I'm so special. Just look what like, I discovered about myself through Henry's eyes. And that I think perhaps is your biggest and most special God-given gift. Thank you. I love your phrase, appreciative inquiry. I've always been interested in people. I want to know, who, um, in, in the Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan, there's a line where the, the chorus sings, if you want to know who we are, we are the gentlemen of Japan. I want to know who people are. What was their background? What made them, what pushed them into being who they are and expressing things and creating what they've created? I mean, I've been lucky to meet creators of the century in so many levels. And uh, your appreciative inquiry is so important to us as well. And the people that you are teaching at Columbia, the, uh, the leadership courses that I, course that you, that I remember you had for one, uh, just, yeah. they're very yeah. happy to have that. Well, thank you. It's an honor to have uh, had you also in that class, you know, on a few occasions where you shared similar stories to what you did so beautifully today. If your craft is purely the art of like photography, you know, as defined in that sort of, you know, formal way, perhaps so. But if your craft is to kind of look for beauty and kind of try to create snapshot of it, snapshots of it in your mind to draw beauty out from, from the world, from the people around you, then I know that is ever present in you, Henry, because just the other day when we were planning this moment and I was talking to you, the joy you were taking in kind of going through that mental scan that you must be doing to think about all the people that you and I have in common that come from my universe, my colleagues, for example, at Mentora Institute that you've had time to interact with, um, you were remembering them so fondly and you were asking them, you know, me about them, you were asking me about my family, etc. with such just natural grace and joy. So that, you know, is just your timeless eternal spirit that always lives on, even as we, you know, have ebbs and flows and changes in our physical world. I, I thank you for that. And I got to tell you, your assistant, Utkarsh, um, had a project that he was doing, going around asking, photographing people, asking them about what makes them happy and why are they happy. What a wonderful project he had. It, and now I'm, I love it. What I was going to say, somebody's asking about photographing anything in your apartment. I uh, look around you. There's something you can see when you're a prisoner, not, not a prisoner, when you're locked into a, a, short, a space you can start seeing little pieces up close of different things in a different way. And you'll see different patterns. I'm looking at a fan and some pencils sticking up over here. And I say, wow, I can do such a close-up of that. You become more, explore your creativity up close on other things that are around, on everything around you. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. It reminds me of a quote from Nelson Mandela. He was in, a, in his Long Walk to Freedom autobiography talking about his time in prison, which he spent like 27 years 
in Robben Island for most of the time. And he talked about how he said, when you're in prison, you start taking pleasure in some of the very simple you know, tasks, such as, for example, can you make your bed in a way so that there's no wrinkle you know, in, the, in the cloth, right? Yeah. And so that reminded me of you know, this attention to detail that you are gathering of just small things you know, that happen around us all the time. That's beautiful. Let's end with uh, you know, this final question. You know, how do photographers feel about painters? How do photographers feel about painters? Yes. What kind of painters? Perhaps uh, if you want to think about like portrait, you know, painting versus photography. It's, uh, it goes through them. Painters capture more. The reality is metamorphosed through them more completely than it is through the photography. Photography catches what's there and in, impelled by what makes you focus on that particular thing. Painters explore. the. It's different. It's very different. Yeah, I think what you're trying to say, Henry, which is powerful. I mean, I just got it only as you were saying it, which is in photography, the lens is the camera lens, while in painting, the lens is the human eyes. And that is human eye and heart and mind. Yeah. That, that's what a, a painter does, what any artist does. And yeah. that's to, to close with what I said in the beginning, uh, an artist sees not only what the situation is, but what a situation is becoming. And all the all the connections around it. Yeah, that's beautiful. What do you see as the central message of this incredibly? Let's also acknowledge incredibly privileged, you know, um, life journey. Uh, one very, you know, well deservedly earned as well. You know, a very special and unique life, and a very special and unique lens through which you have not just viewed the world, but you have brought it to all of us. What, what would you say is your central message from all that you've experienced? I have been blessed. I, I never aimed to be the greatest photographer or to be the greatest singer. I meant to, I tried to fulfill myself in whatever I was doing as fully as I could. And just when I started singing, I thought maybe I could be good enough for Broadway. Then I got good enough for Broadway and then I got better. I could go on to become an opera singer. Um, photographer, I, taking pictures to remember people and to remind myself about who people were and then went on to there and I didn't aim, I didn't have a goal to be something. Uh, I tried to fulfill myself as best I can. I've been very lucky in my support. Carol, my kids, David and Christine, my sister Susie, I'm living with right now, uh, have been helped. The help I have gotten along the way is incredible. I am blessed. I thank God for that. Uh, I'm aware that karmically I've done well and uh, somebody up there likes me. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That, that is so beautiful. There is such a powerful lesson in what you just said around non-attachment to outcome, not being obsessed with these outer accoutrements, like you said, of success, but just to pursue your craft with so much heart and passion and spirit and, uh, and see where it takes you. What, 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 a great, what a great living embodiment of some of these principles and ideas that we talk about in my class, Henry. I am so grateful to have you here with us today. So grateful to Susie, your sister, who's also made this moment happen, who I have so much affection for too. Uh, do give my great regards to your son as well. And uh, it has been a great joy to have you here with us. We hope and look forward to another moment with you on another Intersections, Henry. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's, yeah. a, it's a pleasure. Our, our, our joy.